News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. So today, you're going to hear a lot about what happened 10 years ago tonight. It was Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final, Boston Bruins versus the Vancouver Canucks. I think we all remember what happened after. So there's going to be a lot of discussion about what happened. But, you know, for me, what stands out is just how disheartening the whole thing was. I mean, in my house, we had turned off the TV when the game was over. Didn't find out, actually, until later what was going on. And my first thought when I did hear about it was this horrible sense of deja vu, like thinking back to 1994 and just feeling like it just couldn't be real. Like, we can't be doing this again, can we? And just that profound sense of disappointment that this is what people are going to remember about our region, that we can't lose the Stanley Cup without having a riot. Now, in the days after that, June 15th, 2011, I was working here at the station And what really struck, I think, all of us who were doing the calls and and getting all the emails from people is the anger and the disappointment from all of you out there. Just seeing the pictures and the video of people looting, people who claimed they would never do something like that, right? People you probably knew just brazenly and in some cases, like stupidly, proudly taking stuff think it made so many of us just feel sick inside, whether it was stealing a pair of tuxedo pants, vandalizing trees, or stuffing a rag into the gas tank of a police car. We were horrified by what we were watching unfold right in front of us. I mean, some people became symbols of stupidity for their momentary lapse in judgment. And that's the way it goes, I guess. Many of them paid a high price, right? Losing jobs, losing scholarships to go to post-secondary schools. And I'm sure many of them lost friends or acquaintances because of it. So that's what I remember about that night, the anger and the disappointment of those of us who weren't there. So this isn't some big anniversary today. It's a reminder to us of the ugly side of our behavior. Someday we would all love it, I think, to see the Vancouver Canucks win the Stanley Cup or quite frankly, even go back to the finals but not like that. Not if that's what we have to look forward to. I mean, it's happened twice. We want to make sure the ugly side of our nature doesn't rear its head again. A lot of people have memories of that night. We are going to be uh, hearing more about that coming up later on the show. Uh, Janet Brown is going to be joining us to take us back to that night where she was working. She was, you know, we had been gathering so nicely on the streets watching these hockey games up until that night. And she was one of the reporters assigned to being just down there in the crowd, seeing what was going on. And then it all turned. And it was a really scary thing to, to be there on the street, kind of unprotected when that happened. So she'll be joining us a little later to go through that. Now, I'd like to hear your memories about this too. Like, where were you? What went through your mind? Like your memory, what happened? Did you know somebody? Were you down there? Did you experience it? Or were you at home like I was and just sickened by what you saw unfolding on your TV screen or on the radio? Email me, simi at cknw.com or tell us the story by calling us on our buzz line, 604-331-2899. You're going to hear a lot about this today. So I I think it's important to remember that 
uh, boy, it was the like the days after the riot were incredibly difficult. I think for us as a community, as a society, to kind of grapple with how did how did this happen? How did we let this happen? How did people we know who you would never think would do something like this suddenly show up there on our screens? Uh, you know, proudly holding something they had just looted from a downtown store. How did that happen? So share your thoughts with me on that. You can call our buzz line, 604-331-2899, or email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, when will we find out what happened during the Nova Scotia shooting? 22 people were left dead in April of last year, and yet so many questions remain about the actions of the gunmen and how police responded. There is going to be a public inquiry, but even that has some questions surrounding it. Now that it's been discovered that the two RCMP officers tasked with providing information and responding to the inquiry are the husbands of the two senior officers who responded to the shooting that night. And at the same time, there have been criticisms of how closely the RCMP is holding on to information about the case. Recent leaks to Frank Magazine of the 911 calls from that night, along with the surveillance video of the gas station where the suspect was arrested, have some questioning what is going on within the RCMP. Now, if you haven't yet listened to the 13 Hours podcast with Sarah Ritchie about the case, you absolutely should. Sarah's a Global News Halifax anchor and joins us now with the latest. Hi, Sarah. Good morning. So what is going on with these latest revelations? The RCMP response seems to be just to never answer questions about any of this. Yep, that's pretty much the response to me. It's it's been over a year since the RCMP held a press briefing uh, and answered questions in public about the shooting spree. So it was June 4th of last year that they last answered questions from the media um, in a public setting. You know, through the course of our podcast, we asked repeatedly for interviews or for information in writing. and And we've just been told no, essentially, from uh, November of last year until now. Very little information has come out through the RCMP. They keep saying that the most unbiased opportunity to speak about what happened will be at that public inquiry, which we now know is going to begin its hearings in late October. Right, that's a long ways away. And now this latest controversy involves the husbands of the officers who responded that night? Right, so they're the husbands of two of the top RCMP officers in Nova Scotia. So Assistant Commissioner Lee Bergerman is the commander for all of the RCMP in Nova Scotia. She was the person who came out on the night of April 19th and, and gave a, a, you know, a very emotional um, press conference that night when we were still trying to figure out what had happened that weekend. Her husband uh, is an independent contractor. He's a retired RCMP member who has been hired by the RCMP to um, help with this team that has been put together to provide information to the public inquiry. And the man who's leading that team is the husband of uh, Chief Superintendent Janice Gray, who leads Halifax District RCMP. So there's, you know, it's an interesting question, right? Perception is everything when it comes to a conflict of interest. And one of the legal experts we spoke with yesterday said, look, it's not a question of whether these two, you know, we're not asking whether these two are, are good RCMP members are going to do a good job, but the question becomes if they get into a position where some of the information that they have could put their spouses in a bad light or could cast doubt on their judgment, 
then what are they going to do? And so we just want to avoid that. He said, this expert said, you know, we just want to avoid that situation. They should just be replaced. The RCMP is reviewing their appointments, but as of right now, both men are still on that team. And I know you've been speaking to other experts as well about the fact that information seems to be leaking from within the RCMP. Yeah, so there are a lot of questions about how this is happening. It seems like the, just given the nature of the information, so we're talking about surveillance video from, from the scene where the gunman was shot, uh, an apparent autopsy report of the gunman, photos from that scene, as well as those 911 calls. So given all of that information together coming from an anonymous source, um, one of the former RCMP officers I spoke with named Gary Clement said, you know, it seems like it's either an RCMP member or someone very closely involved in the investigation who's leaked this information. And he said it, it suggests that there's a lack of trust in the RCMP. Um, his comment to me was when a police officer decides to leak something to the media, it's usually because uh, and he hopes, he said, that this isn't the case here, but it's usually because they don't trust that that information will be given to the public. Interesting. So what when it comes to that leaked information, what did we learn from it? Well, it, that varies a little bit, to be honest. Um, the 911 calls, you know, bolster information that we've been reporting on for months. Um, through the course of the podcast, we we learned that there was a witness who told police very early in their investigation that the gunman was driving what he believed to be a police car. He said he thought it was a police officer who pulled up next to him and then shot at him from this vehicle. So what we learned from the 911 calls is that three different individuals identified to 911 dispatchers that the person who was doing the shooting that night was a police officer or they thought was a police officer driving a police car, but they all identified him as this neighbor named Gabe in some way. They all identified him in some way as either a neighbor who's a denturist who drives these kind of cars or that kind of thing. So what this does is it bolsters the information we already knew about what police knew and when they knew it. Because in the early days after the shooting spree, they did come out publicly and say multiple times that they only learned the gunman was disguised as a police officer at 6.30 the next morning. So we know that's not true. What we don't understand is why that information was not disseminated to the public and whether it was disseminated to all of the other police who were responding. It's just unclear to us if that's happened. And the police are, the RCMP are not answering questions about this at all. Do we hope that the public inquiry will be where we get the answers to those questions? Certainly that's the hope. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the public inquiry, you know, there's, as much as this this issue with the the men who are um, providing information from inside of the RCMP, this is a concerning issue. But the experts that I've spoken with do say, like, this is an independent process. These public inquiries are created for a reason. Um, it's because the public has lost trust in the institution itself. And so the aim here is to get information about what happened and to try to clarify the information that the RCMP have given. And I really do hope that after all of these months of saying that the public inquiry is where they'll do their talking, that the RCMP actually do that. We'll see what happens. Sarah, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. So 10 years ago today, we were watching Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final, Boston Bruins, Vancouver Canucks. I think we all know what happened after that. Uh, I was thinking about, you know, how disheartening that whole thing was, watching it unfold, thinking, oh, man, like, again, this is what people are going to remember about Vancouver. And I was wondering how you felt, either watching it, either being down there, whatever was going on with you 
on that night. Uh, call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. But here's one of the memories that we got. Thanks very much for asking what happened to me during the Vancouver riot. I was at corporate meetings in Luxembourg with longtime colleagues, and they all reacted with great disgust and asked me what kind of city Vancouver was. I had a hard time convincing them for years that we weren't some kind of third-world city with no police and no order. I remember, too, that Gregor Robertson invited everybody to come downtown, but didn't make any preparations at all. It was the most foolish exercise of authority and leadership I ever saw, and that was the thing that led directly to the foolishness and the stupidity, the destruction, the embarrassment, and the heartache of that riot that took a year to piece together by the police afterwards. Shame on city council for that. Heartache is a good word to use for that. Our Raji Sohal is with us this morning to talk more about that. And Raji, I think that caller there, he raised some good points because I remember those feeling lots of criticism for city council for not having a policing plan in place and just inviting everybody to come downtown and watch the games and just assuming everything was going to be fine. That's short-sighted, Simi, but it's interesting. I was also like our listener. I was overseas at the time, too. I was at a conference, and I was utterly embarrassed. I was in England, and everybody around me was talking about what was happening in Vancouver. And they thought we were just a bunch of hooligans. And at the end of it, I just couldn't help but think, you know what? There's something that we're missing here. I hear what he's saying about city council, Simi, but there's something that we're missing here about why Vancouver's can't handle their own, why we can't remain civilized. And I think it has to do with us being um, pent up with a lot of rules. We're a very rule-based city, you know, like no drinking in the parks, although I see that changing and I I actually don't want that to change now because I feel like underlying all of that is this undercurrent of our our nature of really wanting to let loose too much and not being able to handle it. But um, there's just something about Vancouverites that, and, you know, Metro Vancouver, the larger area where people just really wanted to let it all out, let loose, but it was utterly embarrassing and it put us back on the map for reasons we don't want to be on the map. Oh, that is so true. I think what happened was that we had been lulled into a false sense of security with the Olympics the year before, right? We had been gathering and it was all good. Like remember the, the gold medal hockey game when Canada won, that was the last day and there were just massive crowds downtown. And what was funny about that is that I was working here at CKNW. It was a Sunday afternoon. I think I was filling in for Sean Leslie. And as the show progressed, I became more and more a concern that I wasn't going to be able to get out of downtown (laughs) because the crowds were huge. But you know what? It all went so well during the Olympics. I think it led to thinking that it would all be fine during the Stanley Cup final. And we know now you still have to plan for the worst, though. Yeah. And the city really should have planned way better, obviously. I mean, I don't know what was happening there with inviting everybody to come downtown to the downtown core. It always, you know, everyone's going to talk about how it always takes just a couple of bad eggs to throw everybody off. But when you look at the footage, to me, it doesn't look like a few bad eggs. No, it was a lot it's of like, bad eggs. Yeah. <laughs> it's many cartons of them, Simi. There were so many people <laughs> right? uh, looting and yeah. rioting. And I just, uh, that's not what I associate with Vancouver. But unfortunately now, like that's a little bit uh, part of our reputation. Unfortunately. Yeah, it is. And the thing that really struck me too, and we took so many calls in the days after and talked about this kind of on the air I was hosting. And, and it was just that these were people who you would never have suspected of behaving like this. Something suddenly happened in that crowd mentality. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it was like, well, I saw that person doing it, and then I couldn't help myself. And you think, what happens to people in crowds like that? 
Yeah, it's called booze. I think people had too much of it that night. That is so true. So that's Raji's memory. She said, same feeling of just being sick. Where were you 10 years ago during that Stanley Cup ride? Watching it on TV, feeling heart sick? Were you down there in the crowd? Let us know how it impacted you. You can email me, simi at cknw.com or call our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. All right. Are you ready, BC? Start making those travel plans for within our province because today kicks off step two of our provincial restart plan. Interprovincial travel, high up on the list for so many people. And that might mean hopping on a ferry. So how is BC Ferries responding to the potential for an increasing number of passengers? Joining us now with more on that is Mark Collins, president and CEO of BC Ferries. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How's the website this morning? Oh, the website. It's been a real challenge. You know, it's a brand new website. It's ultra modern and it's designed to handle these loads. But uh, as the load came on it yesterday with the announcement, uh, we did have technical uh, difficulties and it went down for an extended period. Uh, Got it back up last night. It's still up today and we're watching it carefully. Um, As I say, it's built to handle this, but for some reason, uh, we've got a glitch and we're looking for it uh, with all available resources now. So, Mark, was that just the sudden influx? Like, was it as soon as the official announcement came, was there an influx of people to the website? Well, we've been seeing an increasing load over the last few days, let's say. You know, people were getting a growing sense of optimism that travel was going to be possible. And so loads have been building slowly. But there was a bit of a spike yesterday, I think, when it became real for people. They say, okay, now I can definitely go. And they jumped on there. Uh, I think at our peak, we had about 2,000 people around the website at one time. And it's it's around that 2,000 user mark that seems to trigger some sort of glitch that uh, we don't fully understand yet, but we've got everybody on it. Okay. And how is BC Ferries dealing with the issue of capacity? Because obviously you'd cut back on a lot of sailings over the past year. What's that going to look like moving forward? Well, we're running our full seasonal schedule now, and we have been for some months, you know, thanks to the federal and provincial funding, we've been able to run our full seasonal schedule. We just haven't been operating extraordinarily above our normal schedule. So all of the sailings are running, and we have the capacity to add more sailings if if the demand requires. Where the capacity crunch will come, each individual ship still has a cap on it when it comes to the number of people we can put on board. Not the number of cars, but the number of people. And that's a Transport Canada limit of about 75% of normal. So some ships may individually experience uh, bumping into that peak, but the number of sailings we can run is now uh, just as many as we can get ships to go back and forth. Right. So you're definitely seeing like people are ready to travel. Well, we, it certainly feels that way. We get a lot of customer feedback right now saying, can't wait to go. So uh, we feel there's a lot of pent-up demand out there, and uh, we're ready to handle it. So did everything, you said you had the sailings all going back and forth, but just not the capacity then. So is everything ready to ramp up capacity? Will it be same as it always was before the pandemic? In terms of number of sailings, absolutely. You know, if the people are coming out, uh, we will be able to put on the full summer schedule if demand requires. Uh, the limit from Transport Canada, we're discussing that with Transport Canada right now. Uh, I know they're in consultation with provincial officials. Uh, we hope to have that limit lifted, you know, if things continue to go well with respect to COVID. What kind of social distancing rules? Like, are there any measures being taken on the ferries that we still have to know about? 
Yeah, so the, the changes yesterday uh, allow us, or correction, I guess the changes officially today, um, allow us to forego the use of masks outdoors at terminals. But masks are still required indoors at terminals and everywhere on the ship. So whether you're indoors or outdoors on a ship, it's still mandatory to wear masks. We're still asking people to respect physical distancing. You know, the, the virus is still circulating in our population. We can't let down our guard. So we're hoping people continue to sanitize, follow good hygiene procedures, and maintain that physical distance and masks where mandatory. Okay. And advice then, if Mark, if they're trying to get on the website, if they're trying to make a booking? Well, if the website is giving you difficulty, please call our call center. Uh, We've upped our staff there. We're open from 7 in the morning till 10 at night. If your travel plans permit, uh, try calling the uh, website, uh, excuse me, calling the call center at off-peak times, like after 7 or 8 p.m. at night. It's a great time to call. Volumes are lower. We'll do everything in our power to get you on the sailing of your choice. All right. Thank you very much for your time this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. Mark Collins, BC Ferries President and CEO. Boy, it sure sounds like people are ready to get up and traveling, aren't they? They noticed uh, the last little while, people definitely gravitating to their website, which is a new one, as he pointed out, and they've got some technical issues. So if you do run into problems and use their call center, but they've got the sailings, so will the full capacity return? Will we be going back to these crowded BC ferries? Still some distancing measures there, as you heard him say, masks are still required indoors on all ferries. So that is a good thing to remember. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Are Vancouverites ready to pay for parking and not just a flat fee to park your car on the street in front of your house, but potentially to pay more depending on which vehicle you drive? Those are some of the changes being proposed aimed at reducing pollution in Vancouver. The Climate Emergency Parking Program proposes that people who own a 2023 or newer, quote, high-polluting vehicle, described as a gas-powered luxury sports car, large SUV or full-size pickup truck, would be charged as much as $1,000 per year to get a residential parking permit. Owners of 2023 or newer vehicles deemed moderately polluting uh, would have to pay $500 for the same permit. Now, that's on top of the proposed flat fee of $45 for on-street parking for every vehicle. So right now, the city is in the survey phase, meaning you have a chance to weigh in with your feedback until July the 5th. But let's find out how some councillors feel about this. Joining us now is Adrian Carr, Vancouver City Councillor. Thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Simi. Do you support this? I do. Why? <laughs> oh, you know, we are in a climate emergency. Let's face it. And ev- everyone recognizes that now. Um, and we have to get our greenhouse gas emissions down by 50% by 2030. That's not a lot of time. And it's a lot of GHGs to reduce. This particular plan actually would reduce GHGs in the city. Our staff have estimated and done the, the projections by 10%. That's one-fifth of the way where we need to go. So I think it's really worth supporting for that reason alone. But is it fair to go after people for the type of car that they drive? Like, what if a construction worker, they need to have a pickup truck, they can't park it in their garage, and you're going to ding them? Well, they should park it in their garage if they've got a garage. <laughs> There's too many people that use their garages for storing all sorts of things instead of their vehicles. And they're using the streets, um, which is one of the problems. And we need to think about streets not as private space, but as public space. 
So it's very much in the jurisdiction of the city to say we see a better use for streets or we see we, we have control and we put measures on streets like parking meters. Lots of the commercial areas in downtown have parking meters already. I live in the West End. There's been a residential parking fee for all of the West Bend for a number of years now. Mm-hmm. Um, so as places get more crowded, as we see better uses for streets, um, then, uh, you know, we, we, we are taking action. And this right. is one area where we're taking action. Yeah, I don't think people have, a, most part, don't have a problem with the $45, you know, residential parking permit. A lot of neighborhoods have to pay that. I think where it gets tricky is you're going to really ding people, like potentially $1,000 a year, depending on the car that or the vehicle that they drive is that fair well what isn't fair is for people to ignore the climate crisis and continue to uh, buy gas guzzling vehicles like we have to switch it out and everyone has to pay a part in doing that so yes this is like giving people a nudge if they aren't going to do it already and it will I, we think and we've projected and done polling that it will make a difference for some people if they feel they have to pay extra or more. It's just that nudge that will get them out of buying that gas, gas guzzling vehicle, that, that high performance sports car or, or you, know, you know, big, big SUV. And the thing is that, they, that in, in many cases, I think people know that there is a, a timeline on making the switch. So we're just moving that timeline fast forward. So would you, you'll be voting for this? You support this initiative? Well, I never predict exactly how I'm going to vote until I hear from the public. And there is a public survey that's going on right now. It launched yesterday. It goes on to July 5th. And the final decision or report will come back from staff in the fall about how people feel, etc. And then I'll make my decision. But I can say that I am um, very much leaning to, um, to at this point, without yet hearing from all the public, although we have had a lot of emails that come into our email box at the, at the city. Um, but, but regardless, there were fundamental principles. I swore in an oath of office that I would be um, a counselor who thought about the, the good, the greater good in terms of public good, um, and to think about future generations. And the climate crisis forces me to make decisions that really are in line with that future that I am absolutely determined to protect in terms of our children and their children. All right, Councillor Carr, thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Councillor Adrian Carr with the Vancouver City Council talking about these proposed parking regulations. Now, listen, this is important. If you are a Vancouver resident and you want to have your say, you have until July 5th to take part in that survey Councillor Carr mentioned. You will find it at shapeyourcity.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. So as we've been sharing and talking about this morning, it was 10 years ago that Vancouver was rocked by its second hockey riot, resulted in millions of dollars in damages, related legal costs. Uh, There were something like 800 charges laid against 300 rioters. It was on June 15th, 2011, the Vancouver Canucks lost the last in their best of seven series during the NHL Stanley Cup Finals. And that riot started just before the game ended. Here's what it sounded like. 
I am in the thick of the crowd on Georgia Street at Richards, and let me tell you, there's not very much room here to maneuver. Highlights of previous Vancouver Canucks games are playing on the big screen, and collective cheers are going up when the crowd sees previous goals played. People are angry, people are frustrated, and they simply are not leaving this location. I see smoke now in front of the Canada Post building, and we're hearing explosions. I don't know whether it's uh, fireworks or, or what it is exactly, Terry, but the smoke can be seen uh, way past the Canada Post building, people standing around. I haven't seen that many police officers, wow. to tell you the truth. I've actually counted about 11 in the three blocks I've walked in the last couple of minutes. So, as I say, the situation very tense right now in downtown Vancouver. Some people standing around here just can't believe what's going on, but for the most part, I have to tell you, sad but true, people are excited by what's happening down here. I'm in the old parking lot of the Greyhound bus station right behind the Queen Elizabeth Theatre. The crowds of people are destroying two police cars. They're on the roof of the police car, kicking out the lights, kicking out the back window, kicking out the side window, throwing objects, and people are standing and cheering and clapping. I just don't get this. People in suits are even standing and clapping. They're tipping it over. They're tipping over one of the police cars, and they're cheering. Listen to the crowd. Well, many people were caught up in that chaos there, but as you heard, our CKNW senior reporter Janet Brown was there reporting at the scene, so we're checking in with her now this morning to talk about that. Hi, Janet. Thanks for being here. Oh, hi, Simi. Listening, listening to that really brings it all back, and it's, it doesn't seem like 10 years, that's for sure. It seems like just a few nights ago. I mean, it's still very, very clear in my mind, and I'm sure... Others who were there or watching it on TV or listening yeah. to it on the radio feel the same way that it was just, you know, a few days ago, unfortunately. Yeah, it does feel like that, too. But you know what? We've been talking about kind of that gut punch that people had when they first heard about it, if they weren't down there or just how sick we felt when we saw it. Give us an idea, Janet, what it was like just the moment that things started to turn. When did you realize things were going sideways? Well, it was pretty early in the evening, actually, Simi, that uh, that I knew that there was going to be trouble. It was actually before the game ended, and it was around 7 p.m. Uh, that I was walking through the crowd and interviewing various people and chatting with them, asking them what they were doing there, et cetera, et cetera. And many people in the crowd, groups of people in the crowd, mainly young men, told me they had gone downtown that night for one reason only, and that reason, Simi, was to riot. And I remember interviewing them, putting that on the radio and thinking, you know, and asking them, what do you mean you came down to riot? What, who would do that? Why would you do that? And I knew right then and there at seven o'clock that there was going to be trouble, especially if our team lost, uh, because, you know, there were so many people down there. And as I said in that reporting, there seemed to be so few police officers compared to the size of the crowd. And I remember thinking, too, do the police know that people are saying this, that they're planning to riot? Do I need to call 911? And I thought, well, surely the police know that because they are here in the crowd talking to people as well. But I don't know. Did they yeah. did they get the same vibe and same information that I did? So, yeah, it was very early in the evening that I knew there was going to be trouble for sure. That vibe that you're talking about there, do you think, so would it have happened? Do you think whether they won or lost, like were people just there, do you think, to cause trouble? 
Absolutely, because that's what they told me. They were there not to watch the game, not to have fun with friends. They came downtown to riot. And people over and over and over again were telling me that, and I just couldn't wrap my head around it. And, uh, you know, some of them have alcohol on them already. And as we found out later, there were droves of people who came down on SkyTrain with alcohol. And I don't think the police, the transit police, were expecting what really unfolded. And that came out in a report many months later that really the police were not that prepared. But let's face it, how prepared could people be? Nobody expected a riot that night. The reporters, the RCMP, the police, Vancouver police, nobody expected a riot to, to happen that night. Yeah. Tell, what then, about the police know, so response? How did you see the police responding once things did start to get out of control? Well, before things got out of control, they were very friendly with the crowd, obviously, and, you know, having their pictures taken, and I remember thinking, hmm, okay, whatever, you know, um, they were overly friendly, I thought, and maybe that's a good thing, maybe that was their strategy, but fast forward to the game being over, and, and the rioting starting, and the chaos starting, and uh, things turned very quickly, obviously, and the riot team was deployed eventually later in the night, and I remember watching them walking down Georgia Street, trying to clear Georgia Street, um, and pushing the rioters further and further past the post office, past the CBC building. Um, and, and when I described in that reporting about the police cars being set on fire, I remember s- standing very, very close to that, about 10 feet away, seeing the riot squad coming down Georgia Street. And a lot of the rioters were so fixated on what they were doing they didn't see the riot squad coming and they were all crowded into the parking lot of the um the the beside the queen elizabeth theater and and i remember thinking there's only one exit and it's a very small opening through a fence and finally when they started to realize that the riot squad was coming they all ran to escape and a lot of people got hurt because a lot of people got trampled trying to exit that parking lot and and that night i remember i must have run miles and miles and i'm no athlete trust me <laughs> and just to keep in front of <laughs> right keep in front of the riot squad uh keep keep close enough to yeah. the rioters so i could see what was happening and and be able to report on it but also to keep safe as well throughout that night and many journalists many tv camera people were injured that night yeah it must have been frightening it it was frightening but uh, yeah i mean i was fixated and focused on on my job but yes i mean you have to keep your presence about you t- to stay safe and talk about frightening i remember my my dad who was in his 80s was phoning me every 10 minutes saying where are you i'm coming to get you and bringing you home <laughs> and <laughs> i would just hang up on him and say dad i'm okay i've got a so job cute. to do uh but 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 it was scary it yeah. was scary and and i think it was more scary simi when when i realized what had happened later that night early the next morning but when you've got a job to do you have a job to do and you have to bring the information to the people but you know it was the tv reporters and the camera people uh who had to get closer than i had to obviously because i was only having to describe the scene i didn't have to bring pictures to people but it was an intense night that's for Mm -hmm. sure very scary thanks for sharing that with us this morning janet appreciate that my pleasure this is mornings with simi Starting today, our provincial travel restrictions are lifted. This is the phase 
two of our reopening plan. Let me tell you, tourism operators all over BC are pretty happy to get their businesses going again. Our Raji Sohal back with us. Raji, I can imagine they are raring to go. Oh my goodness, are they ever? Imagine the Okanagan, right? Just sprawling beauty and whose economy is inextricably linked to tourism. All that ranch life, the waterfalls, trails, wineries, desert, all of it's just been near empty. And so the announcements like brought on a major sigh of relief over there. You know, Simi, when you and I are looking at our family going anywhere or, you know, even having done a, a dinner reservation outside on a patio over the last year or whatever, we have like had very small considerations. But imagine if you're a tourism operator and your whole livelihood for an entire year depends on these precious summer months of being overbooked. I talked to Ellen Walker Matthews, the CEO of Thompson Okanagan Tourism Association. I mean, I think the thing we really appreciated from the government was that when they did do the circuit breaker, they did give us a phased approach. So what they thought was going to happen. And I think really from an industry industry perspective, that's what we were looking for. If this happens, then this happens. We at least had a roadmap. So we really appreciated that. I think before when things were opening, closing for a little while, it was just too, so unpredictable. The problem with the timing is that businesses haven't had a chance to ramp up their staff and staff has have found other jobs. They've left the industry. Um, they've, you know, they've maybe been on assistance and, and now they don't feel the need to not be on assistance. I'm not saying that's the entire issue, but I think a lot of people have just said we're leaving the tourism industry. It's too unpredictable. Simi, you've probably heard across many industries, actually, people talking about losing staff and needing to suddenly reamp the staff. So their solution in the Okanagan for losing so much staff over the pandemic was to get creative with recruiting new staff. I know some businesses are offering incentives. Um, other businesses are offering sort of different types of benefits where maybe you get an opportunity to have different days off than you normally would, or maybe more days off in a row. So you can travel as an employee. Um, they're, they're also looking at trying to, to tap into other population groups of in, potential employees. Like we do have a lot of retirees in this region who maybe don't think that they have a place in tourism because they had a different type of job in their life and maybe perfect to be in a wine tasting room or on a front desk or serving on a patio. And so really trying to look at who are all the different population groups that might be interested in, in coming into tourism. Isn't that interesting, Simi? Yeah. Just bringing in totally new recruits. I love it. And, you know, the worst of problems in general in life, I find, do bring about the best of innovation. And I have long awaited a patio expansion in Vancouver, like a lot of other cultures and cities. You know, they really embrace the whole eating en plein air, al fresco outside. It's such an important part of how other cultures enjoy food. So, so why not us? Here's Ellen Walker Matthews again. You know, I th well, I think we have to applaud the restaurants and, and the government for allowing patios to get bigger. I think that saved all of us from completely um, going off the deep end. I think that, you know, having the opportunity to be out on a patio was really helpful. And now we've got some beautiful new patios and we're all hoping that they will stay. I think if the numbers are in half in the restaurants, which are difficult to make money, then if they have a bigger patio so they can try and extend their revenue, that really helps. Um, some businesses are looking at different ways of checking in guests you know, they've learned how to do it without having necessarily a full front desk where they're either doing it remotely or, or uh, by, uh, by a mobile phone. So some of those patterns that we thought might emerge down the road are starting to happen now. And I think we'll start to see more technology come into play. 
Yeah, Sammy, I feel like the pandemic has made the tourism organizations just really adapt. And we get so set in our ways, our routines, our expectations around how to do things. They actually, in the Okanagan, they launched um, a tourism resiliency program to reach out to the businesses that just felt at a loss when they would go to these government websites for subsidies and whatnot and didn't understand the lingo and the rhetoric. And so they kind of acted like a bridge between them. And they are asking tourists to be a lot more gentle. This is Mornings with Simi. Case numbers are down, right? Things are getting better. Even in Fraser Health that bore the brunt of the second and third waves of COVID-19. And really nowhere was that felt more strongly, I think, than the school system in Surrey. It was quite a challenge to keep schools open. Many times we talked to people in charge. We talked to teachers, students, parents, and they were all concerned. But despite the number of exposures, things seem to be on the right track now. Joining us is Surrey District Superintendent Jordan Tinney. So nice to talk to you when there's good news to talk about. Yes, indeed. Good to be here. Good morning. So what's it like these days in doing your job versus what it was, say, two months ago? Oh, it's uh, dramatically different. I think really from from September, really uh, until kind of April, it, it was just COVID, you know, really seven days a week. We we kind of had a standing joke, for example, that we used to say on Friday, hey, it's the weekend. And, and then on Friday, um, through COVID, we said, hey, Friday, just two more working days until Monday with just COVID never took a break, right? It was just on us every day. Yeah, it sounds like it. So how different is the situation now for Surrey Schools? Well, so we're, you know, really we're having, um, you know, one or two exposure notices a day, which are still, of course, significant for the people, you know, on the front lines, but it's just so different from, you know, 15, 20 uh, through sometimes. So, you know, these onesies, twosies, and a few people put into isolation or given self-monitoring, it's just so different because it's just the volume has really turned off for us. So we're able to look ahead to September kind of in a new way. And also, I think the other part is, is, what we hoped most importantly is is looking towards people being able to have the summer that really they need and deserve. That is so true. You also, you wrote a piece about asking the question, how do we adequately thank the system? What did you mean by that? Well, it's so, yeah, I, I mean, I've been thinking about it for a few months that if we got to this place where, you know, it looked like September, September would be full on, just how do you adequately say thank you? Because you can't single out or even focus on one group um, and say, oh, gee, let's thank this particular group or that particular group. I think just everyone has gone above and beyond in so many ways. And I was trying to capture some of that. When you think of, you know, our education assistants who work most closely with students in one-on-one support in an era of guidelines around physical distancing and and safety protocols and, and protective equipment, what did that look like? I think about, you know, here's a story for you. Many times this year, we would have principals and vice principals on Saturdays and Sundays phoning all of their staff, phoning parents, phoning classrooms, you know, telling, giving people information that they were exposed. And in some cases, those principals were positive with COVID. So, you know, just so many people went above and beyond. And it isn't just in the school. It's at the district level, all levels. And I just, I don't know an adequate way to say how grateful we are for keeping kids in school. And I, I do believe parents are grateful that kids have been in school as well. It must have been so hard for you, too, because all those stories that you just told, we didn't know any of that, right? I think parents were feeling stress and anxiety and students were. And yet, look at what was going on behind the scenes. 
absolutely. Uh, you know, one one night I can remember a busy night. We we have a, an entire team of of people working on communication, sending on exposure notices, and they get delayed in two batches during the day. And the last batch comes at two p.m. on on more than one occasion. We could not process them before midnight. So you again, there's another group that's just going above and beyond. And right now we look at that team, and they've got one exposure a day, and they're like, okay, we've got four and five people. So time to start <laughs> focusing on other things. Yeah, I haven't been able to think about that for a long time. So do you think the system worked as it should? It certainly wasn't designed for this, but it was able to pivot and respond. Yeah, I, I, you know, to your question, I don't think we ever designed a system to do this. Um, but I, I think the way in which we pivoted and responded was amazing. I think it was also important throughout the time to stay the course, even though the path was difficult. Um, adjust as you can, but in little ways, rather than throw the whole system on the air. You know, when you think of, of Surrey's context, really we had two schools in a year that were where an outbreak was declared. So we had two schools with full school two weeks off, but with eight, you know, close to 8,000 notices that went out, just people did remarkable things. And when we put schools into, whole schools into self-isolation, you know, the staff just did it. They, they just did it. And the parents mm-hmm. just accepted it. It's just, I think everybody pulled together knowing that, well, for good or for bad, these are the rules in this year and that's what it takes to see us through. And I think that's why the, you know, I wrote the blog because it appears, you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, that we, <laughs> we may have seen it through indeed. Yes, exactly. Fingers crossed, knock on wood. Um, what yeah. do you think the lessons are that we've learned that you would like us to take forward from this? Well, I think uh, a few big lessons. One, just how quickly the, the system can pivot if necessary. <clears throat> I think the other one about working in different ways. I mean, I meet, for example, in my job, I meet with the unions all the time. I was meeting with our QP union yesterday, and I said, gee, we, uh, for years we've driven together to each other's offices or, you know, to meet. Uh, what do you want to do next year? And they were unanimous. Well, let's just keep going virtual. Like, why would we drive to board offices in order to meet face-to-face when we can just flip the switch, look at each other? And if we need to gather face-to-face, we will. But I think there are implications for the workplace, different from schools, And I think for schools themselves, you know, teachers have found, um, and education assistants and all sorts of other people as well in the system, new ways to use technology, which really can be supportive. So I think there's this new, or I will say renewed thirst for in-service and hardware and access to technology in ways we've never seen before. I think we have to remember all that too, right? Not just relief that it's over and, and move on. Yeah, I don't think we'll ever be the same. You know, I think that we, we've had a big focus on on student leadership this year where really that's been empowered by, by technology because we've been able to reach out and connect with more students. And, you know, for the students, they, they desperately have missed their social connection. When you talk to them, it's been their biggest piece. And I just think for them to be able to connect with their peers next, next year in the way that they normally have been able to is just going to be gold. I'm sure you're looking forward to seeing that firsthand. Uh, Jordan, thank you so much for your time this morning. All right, you take care. You too. That's Jordan Tinney, the Surrey School District Superintendent. 
What a relief it is to be able to talk to him on a much lighter, brighter note than all the other times we were talking to him during the pandemic. And I think you can tell just by the sound of his voice that it's a very different situation in the Surrey School District these days. Uh, No more, you know, long lists of school exposure notices, nothing like that. He said it's completely different situation now. And he is just so grateful that the system was able to respond and for the hard work that everybody did. It is a good news story. He's written a lovely blog about this about how do you say thank you to the system and to so many people who went above and beyond to make sure they were doing everything they could to protect students and teachers and, and parents and everybody involved in the school system. So that's nice to see. Find a way in, simi at cknw.com. We have been hearing a lot from you today on your memories. We're kind of looking back to 10 years ago, right? It was the Stanley Cup riot on June 15th, 2011. Where were you? And also, you know, where were you? But what was your first thought when you saw what was happening? Maybe you were down there. Maybe you saw something. Getting lots of calls to our buzz line about this, 604-331-2899. We'll hear more of what you've been saying about that coming up next.